What is going on, everybody? It's your host of Recover Out Loud, Sean. And before you get into this episode, let's go ahead and hear from friends of the show. Enjoy. Hey, guys, this is your host of the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless Chris. I'm here to let you guys know of my podcast that is now on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube. You can find me at Fellow Traveler MH on TikTok. You can find me at the Mental Health Movement Pod on Instagram. And on Facebook, you can find me at the Mental Health Movement. Hopefully, you guys can tune in, join the group, join the family, help us break the stigma in mental health. Much love to you guys, and be gentle with yourselves. Cover out loud episode number seventy seven. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm super sorry for the way that this is going to come out, guys. Uh, yeah, the second video didn't even play uh, for the show, so hey, you know we're just going to fucking roll with it because that's what we do here. We uh, we just roll with the punches and technology. Like I said, is our best friend, worst ally. Anyways, today we've got an awesome guest. His name is uh, Tim. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? I can't complain, man. Can't complain. Just running around like a madman uh, today, and then and then uh, trying trying to fit everything in, trying to make trying to make a, a circle fit into a square. Yeah, yeah, every day, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. So, Tim, would you like to give a formal introduction of yourself? Yeah, uh, my name's Tim Pangburn. I'm a tattoo artist. Uh, I work outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I own two shops. Uh, and I am also a recovering alcoholic, and I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2, an anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and ADHD. So I manage a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You got a lot going on, friend. And I got five kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's why you got that white and the gray in your beard, bro. Absolutely. That all came after <laughs> the little one. Craziest. Right. I have I have all girls. So I have a biological daughter. I got a stepdaughter. And that is why my gray, my beard is going gray, man. I got I got three teenage daughters. So, yeah. And then two little <laughs> boys on top of it. Nice, nice. So um I'm pretty sure we're gonna talk about the tattooing portion, but I find that uh very interesting. I have some art. I just got this done. But um when did you start tattooing? When I was 19. Well, I did my first when I was 17, almost 18. I got my hands on like a mail order kit, which was a terrible idea. I did some awful tattoos on a couple of my friends and then dropped it because I was like, I have no clue what I'm doing. And then uh, I got an apprenticeship when I was 19. So I've been tattooing for 25 years now. Nice, nice. What about tattooing do you love? I, there was a lot. I got into it because it, well, I got into it because I thought I could party. But that uh, 
first it wasn't true and then it was too true. Um, but I, I like, um, I like the freedom that it's given me. It's, it's, uh, you know, I make good money. I do art. I have time to spend with my kids, uh, you know, when I'm not working like a maniac, but you know, I, I have flexibility and I've always liked that. I'm my own boss. So, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, I know from, and I'm pretty sure you might feel the same way, but there's like a certain level of pain when you, when that needle goes into your skin, the endorphins get released and, and it's just like something about that experience is, is completely different. I don't know if it's the pain associated with the pleasure. What do do you kind of have an understanding of that? Uh, I hate getting tattooed. Really? (laughs) You got tattoos all over the place, my friend. Well, it's one of those things like the, the, more I get them, the less I like it, the more I want. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I, as I get older, I feel like they hurt more, but it's like, I'm still tolerant of them. I mean, it's like you want a tattoo, you deal with it, you know? Yeah. And I don't like the first half hour and I don't like the last half hour, but the middle is not too bad. Yeah. The healing process sucks too. Yeah. Yeah. The itchiness is the worst. Yeah. Yeah. I just got my hand done probably a month and a half, two months ago. And like my hand swelled up so bad right here and on the bone. It was insane. I had both my hands done, had them lasered twice and then had them redone. Oh, terrible. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. So have you ever had anybody come into one of your shops and be like, hey, man, just freehand something? Oh yeah. Um, well, I, I hardly ever work without any kind of drawing. I've done that a few times, um, but I actually freehand with markers on the skin almost everything I do. Probably five percent of my work. Nice. So it's been something I've done for years. Uh, I feel like I just get a, I don't know, just kind of running with it. I get a, a better result out of it most of the time. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'd like to give. I, I I only put minimal input into what I want and I let the artists have the free reign with what they want because they're they're the artists they know best. Yeah, yeah, that's what I always do when I get tattooed by anybody. I just kind of give them my idea and you know, do do it how you want. They're like, is this okay? I'm like, dude, whatever you want to do, go for it. <laughs> yeah. You are the artist. You're 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 putting your masterpiece on me. Yeah, that's that's how I always look at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna dive into it, man. Uh what was it like in, in your active addiction or, or when did it start for you? Uh, you know, it was, I used to find it hard to pinpoint a period that, um, that it, it would have like been a beginning for it. But as I've, you know, gotten further along in recovery, I've realized that, you know, I was an alcoholic from the minute I picked up a drink. Um, I first drank when I was 15 and I drank a six pack. And then my second time I drank, I drank a pint of whiskey. And the third time I drank, I drank most of a fifth in maybe a half hour and ended up in a hospital. Ooh. That was the first three times I drank. And I just never learned moderation after that. I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do it from the beginning. Uh, you know, but I feel like the signs were there even younger. I remember my uncle taught me to play poker when I was 12 and I lost a dollar and I was searching in the cushions. So I feel like somebody should have been like, this is a sign. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's here it is. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah, but but the, the with the drinking once I uh, once I kind of got past that you know those few things I didn't drink for a little while because I was like oh man I went to the hospital and then when I I started again like a year later and basically that was my drinking career it was like I'd be okay 
then I'd get out of hand a little bit and then I'd go overboard and something bad would happen. And then I might slow down or stop briefly. And I just lather and repeat for, you know, 20 years. And that's, that's how my whole drinking career went. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was, I'm a veteran. And, and so like I say from the first, from the first sip that I ever had, like I was addicted, just like you said. Um, but I, be, you know, I became a professional drinker along with a professional soldier, dude. Like, uh, it, it was just ingrained into me, you know, become a functional alcoholic so that nobody asks a question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I functioned really, I was high functioning alcoholic for a long time. I, I was able to keep, uh, drinking and work just separate enough that like, uh, you know, I wasn't drinking at work for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I just, I just functioned like that. You know, I was drunk every night. I was hung over every day and, you know, did my work and uh, wasn't until the last year or so of my drinking that I turned into an all day drinker. That's when I was, you know, getting up in the morning. I'd have a few. I get sick every morning, you know, have a few. You level me out, have a few at lunch and then start drinking when I got done work, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, I was I, I thought I was good at it, you know. Yeah. 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 So once once that 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 part of your brain kicked in and you started like, like needing it, how did it affect your, your health? Um, I'm here. I'm listening. I can't, you know, I, I don't know. It was like, a, it, it had been so long since I had not had some kind of substances in me. Cause I mean, you know, I, I drank religiously and, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, take pills and stuff. So it was like, I was, I mean, aside from like a, a month or two here and there, like I was always under the influence. So yeah. it was like, I didn't notice how it was affecting my health, you know, other yeah. than like the last year or so, I thought I was having like mini heart attacks all the time. Like I was like, Oh my God, my chest, I'm going to die. But it didn't stop me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What? So, so at what point did you like look at yourself and, and say, I, I, I need some help. Like this shit's getting out of hand. Uh, well, there were a few times I thought that over the years, you know, lot, most people don't, don't quit the first time they try. Uh, so I had tried a few times over the course of maybe six years or so. And I might get a month, I might get a few weeks. One time I got almost six, but I was miserable. Um, but it was, for me, it was my last night out was my final, final straw. Uh, now I, I was in the midst of like a mass exodus of artists quitting my shop. And I went out and I, I realized normally I'd just, you know, have a few drinks and drive home. But I, I realized I had had too many. I was like, hey, you know, what? I can't drive home. And that was a lot for me to say that. Like, I can't drive home. And so, you know, I told my fiance, she's my wife now, she's stuck around. Uh, told my fiance, I'm, I can't make it back. And then, you know, I, I closed out this bar and I was like, I'm going to the after hours bar. And I headed down in the South Philly. It was about six, seven miles away. Headed down in the South Philly and uh, I was walking down the street and I talked to somebody on the street and then I was on the corner at 6 a.m. So I don't know how, I don't know if I made it to the after hours when while it was gone, my phone was dead. Uh, I, I don't know what happened. So, you know, with no phone, no wallet and six miles from my car, I had to start, you know, start walking. 
and it was a, it was a long walk. You know, it's sun coming up, and you have a lot to think about. And I was walking past, or as I was walking, I wasn't walking past yet. As I was walking, I could see the, the Ben Franklin Bridge, one of the big bridges in the Philly from Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I could see the Ben Franklin Bridge, and I was like, you know what? I'm I'm just going to jump off the bridge. Like I had dealt with uh, a lot of suicidal ideation. I'd had attempts in the past. And I was like, you know, this is, I can't do this. Everybody's going to be better off. I'm a fucking disaster. And, uh, that I was committed to that. And then as I got closer to the bridge, I realized I was like, wait, my phone's dead. I can't just jump off the bridge without like texting or emailing my fiance to let her know what's happening. So she's not worried. Like, yeah. You know, but thinking because I was thinking, I'm like, they're gonna, it's going to take them days to find me. You know, I knew people jumped off bridges. Like, it takes days to find people. So I thought if I didn't tell her, that's selfish. Like, in in that skewed thought process. So I didn't jump, and I made it back to my car, and I made it back to my house. And when I got home, she had all my stuff packed up in the in the living room. She was ready to throw me out. And when I walked in, I just fell on the ground. I was just crying. And I was telling her, I need help. I have a problem. And yeah. I told her, like, I'm going I'm to hurt myself if I don't get help. And uh, she helped get me a bed in a, in a dual unit. Um, and I was, I was there for nine days. And even when I, after they got me detoxed, I still was thinking, man, I can't drink liquor anymore. You know? And then yeah. a, few more, a few more days in there, I realized, I was like, I can't drink at all anymore. Like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to end up dead. Yeah. And, uh, I was in there nine days and then I did six months outpatient and it's, I haven't really looked back since then. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were talking about those periods of time where, where you would, where you would reel it back and, or, or you would stop drinking, but you pick it right back up. Um, I've done that before uh, many, many times where it's like, you know, uh, I was always sober for somebody else, or I wasn't even sober. We'll just we'll just call it what it was. I was dry drunk, yep. and, but I was dry drunk for somebody else. And then when that person left, like I had nothing else to be sober for. Is that kind of like where you were? Uh, it was similar. Um, I mean, I, I definitely had that mindset. I think the the one time after I got a DUI, I was sober for close to six months. And uh, the first couple months, I was really about it. I was like, this is good. And then I started, you know, those thoughts started creeping in where I'm like, you know what? It's just about control. Like, I can't control. I'm not in control. And if I get in control, it'll be all right. Yeah. You know? Uh, but I, it was, this This time was probably the fourth time that I really, like, earnestly tried to get sober. And, uh, you know, the other time, one time was when I was with my ex-wife and, she told me, you're just as much of an asshole as when you're drinking. You might as well be drinking. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, All right. I was that. I was like a month sober. I was like, well, if you say so. Uh, and then there was a couple other times, the six months. There was another time it was a month. Um, but, yeah, that's what it was. I was always doing it for other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was doing it for my wife or doing it for my kids. or You know, and it wasn't until I actually wanted to do it for myself that I was able to make it stick. Uh, which is, it's weird because people that don't understand it are like, well, why can't you do it for your kids? Think about your kids. And I'm like, it's not about the kids. It's about me. Yeah. You know, it sounds selfish, but it's true. Yeah. Recovery is a very selfish program. You know, um, my, my story to recovery is, you know, uh, I ended up catching an assault charge that was alcohol related and I was standing in front of a judge, 
uh, in a treatment in a, in a treatment court, and the judge said, "You know, you've tried many times before. Like, what what's different now?" And I was like, "Well, I got to do it for myself because if if they leave, I got nobody else to be fucking sober for, and I'm gonna die, right? And I don't want to die." So, um, yeah, I can resonate with that, man. And, and man, like, like, like you said, you know, there's people that just don't understand that are like, oh, well, why can't you do it for your, your wife or for, for your kids or for your employment? Because eventually, to some degree, they're going to go. They're going to disappear. What do I have left? Yeah, you're always stuck with yourself. Yeah. So yeah. You're the only one you really have to live with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, you were explaining uh, when you were when you were in South Philly and you you were on the corner and then you were thinking of uh, contemplating suicide. Was that like your ultimate rock bottom, or was there like something else that was like, "Fuck, this is my rock rock bottom"? That was my. I would call that my rock bottom in the sense that like I, I was ready to get help. Yeah, I'd say there's plenty of moments I would consider rock bottom moment. You know, I've yeah. done a lot of things I'm ashamed of and, you know, I own that now. Like there are things I did and I know it, um, you know, and, and but overall, I guess, I mean, as far as like the saying of rock bottom in order to get sober, then, yeah, that was my rock bottom. But there's plenty of moments along the ride that were. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, and and like the thing that baffles me is like uh, going into AA. I don't like I, I don't like to intrusively talk about certain programs because everybody's recovery looks different. But going back to the back to AA and the promises where it says you'll look back on past mistakes and not regret them, right? Uh, or or you know you'll be able to own. Them. Long story short, I mean I mean long long version short. Uh, I used to be, dude, I used to look back and I was like, man, I was a real piece of shit. And I felt like shame and guilt and like all of this. And now I can say from perspective where I'm at now, I can look back and be like, Hey, that was a phase of my life. And I've already, you know, made amends for him. Is that kind of where you're at? Sort of. Um, you know, cause I still feel guilt and I still feel shame over some of the things I've done, but, uh, I look at it as without, having those experiences, I would not be where I'm at right now. And if, if, if any of it looked different, if any of it looked different then this right here would look different and it might not be in a position that it's in now. So my life not might it might not be as good. I might not have the perspective. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the perspective I have now and I wouldn't have it if I didn't have those experiences. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I say all the time, I've had a few people ask, you know, if I could go back and change anything, would I? And I said, no, because oh, I don't know that I would be right here where I'm at now doing what I'm yeah. doing now. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly how I look at it. Uh, because I mean, in, in a, in a, like if the world's perfect sense, like, yeah, I'd take back all kinds of things, but that's not how life works. That's not how things work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you go into detox and, and, you know, you start, you start getting sober. What does it look like moving forward for you after that? Um, well, I remember talking to my wife on the phone when I was in and she was like, you know, and I was like apologizing and stuff. And she's like, look, I don't know if I'm sticking around. Like I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I was like, you don't have to. 
was like, if you go, that's, uh, that's my fault. And I had to deal with it, but I got to do this for myself. And I think that that, I think that that helped her stick around, uh, you know, and getting out, it, there was, it was a lot of humility coming out. I was humbled by the whole thing. Uh, it knocked ego out of me. I, you know, I just gotten this acceptance real fast of where I was and what my future was going to have to look like in order to, to stay like that. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I was in this mass exodus of artists. I had like six or seven people quit over the course of a few months. Uh, in hindsight, a lot of it, I understand a lot of it was because of my drinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't get it at the time. Didn't know why people are leaving, you know, oh, they're assholes, this and that. But, you know, when I look back now, I'm like, they were doing what they had to do to get out of a bad situation. Because, I mean, you know, I'm bipolar also. And I was unmedicated at the time. They didn't know what to expect out of me. I, I, Tim's walking fast today. Is he angry or excited? <laughs> what they expect out of me every day to day. So, you know, I, I um, I, I was real humbled when I came out. A lot of people had left, and a few more people left after I got out. You know, nobody believed I was going to stay sober, uh, but I give them no reason to. I've given anybody a reason to. Yeah. You know, my 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 wife didn't think I was going to stay sober. Um. You know, but just day by day, I was proving to her that I'm not going to drink again. And, uh, you know, that first year, um, you know, I, I felt this huge hit to my creativity. I felt like I couldn't do things because I was so used to doing it all drunk that I wasn't painting, wasn't drawing. I, uh, I played a lot of video games, but I took it as self-care. I was like, I'm just relaxing. That's I'm just going to relax. And if it makes me relax, I'm just going to do that. Um you know, I went to IOP for six months and there was, you know, so that was several days a week. I was there, you know, group therapies and stuff like that. Uh, I went and saw my therapist weekly. Uh, I went to four or five uh, AA meetings every week for about a year. Um, you know, and that was my first year out. That was my first year. I did a lot to try to keep myself in environments that were going to, that were conducive to sobriety, you know? No. Uh, luckily, a couple of the guys that quit were the big partiers in my shop. The two guys that left after I got out, like they were, they were. I don't know if I'd say they were as bad as me, but like they, they got so, and they talked yeah. about it a lot. So it was actually a blessing that they left because I, I couldn't be around that. I didn't know what it. I couldn't be around people like that. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. You your 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 story of recovery, like what you, the programs that you started doing sound like, just like mine, dude. Uh, I, I, you know, started doing IOP and, and it was going to counseling and it was doing the AA thing multiple times a week because, you know, that's what kept me sober. That's what, on top of that, the accountability of being, of being in a treatment, <laughs> treatment court. But uh, yeah, man, uh, what, what, uh, what was the most beneficial part of your early recovery? Uh, my therapist. Yeah, my, my therapist, because, uh, you know, I found that in IOP, it was very um, strict and regimented. So it was like they treated us all the same. And it's like, I understand you're treating people with addictions. There's the, you know, your textbook, how addiction works. But they're telling me things like, I was supposed to get married that year. They're like, you're, you're, you have to have a dry wedding. And I'm like, I'm not 
I'm not doing that to my guests. Like yeah. my guests drink, like I'm going to let them drink. And they're like, well, you have to get rid of the vanilla extract in your house. I'm like, I am not going to drink vanilla extract. And they're like, you might. I was like, some people might, I am not drinking vanilla extract. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I was still learning my boundaries with things, but it's like, you know, there's, there's bottles of wine in my house. I'm okay with that. I know some people aren't, uh, but they didn't treat us like individuals there. So it was, uh, I, I kind of butted heads with them, but I would be able to go back and bounce it off my therapist and, you know, we could talk things through. And I felt similar with AA because um, I could never find a sponsor. I tried and I like, I'd get a sponsor, but I wouldn't click with them. Um, and, and I was having a, you know, with my work schedule, it's like, you know, hard to find meetings, but there's a clubhouse not too far from me. So I was able to go there. Uh, but the meetings I could make, uh, you know, I wasn't finding people, you know, wasn't finding people I clicked with. And, uh, you know, I was getting kind of like shallow sobriety out of a lot of people there, you know, just, just keep coming. And I'm like, well, I have a question about this. And they're like, don't think too hard. And I'm like, I have questions. I'm thinking I can't help it. You know, <laughs> yeah. so I was getting a lot of that. And uh, so I'd have to go back to my therapist. So I ended up walking through. I, I didn't. I, I didn't do the steps in order. I, you know, but I ended up walking through all of it with my therapist, and he helped me a lot. I went to him for eight years. So he uh, he's the one that helped me the most, I think. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, I know, especially like if you get a counselor that you click with or your therapist that you click with, and and that'll work for you and work with you. It it works amazing. Like. I had a, I, it sounds bad to say on here, but I had to fire a counselor because I wasn't clicking with her. Right. Like I was, you know, sitting there and I was trying to express how I feel. And then she's like, well, how does that make you feel? And I'm like, well, angry. Cause you keep asking me that question. <laughs> um, but then wrong, I, nothing wrong with firing a counselor no. like that's, that's for your health. Like, you yeah. know, if you don't feel good with it. Yeah. And then, and then I ended up getting a counselor that was a veteran and he was, he was in recovery for alcoholism. So I was like, you and I were a stick like glue friend. And, uh, and yeah, so it's great. And, and I would advocate for anybody to get a counselor that like works for you and works with you and that, and that you, you can relate to on, on, on multiple levels. Yeah. I I had a guy for a couple of years as my first therapist, so I didn't know, um, what to expect out of therapy. And I would talk to my wife and she'd tell me, you know, Oh, well, I was talking to my therapist about this. And she said that. And I'm like, Oh, your therapist talks. She's like, yeah, they're supposed to talk to you. And I was like, Oh, my guy just comes there and listens to me. And I just, I didn't get it that he wasn't helping me. He was just kind of hanging out. (laughs) Just collecting a paycheck. Yeah. But once I got with somebody that was good, I was like, Oh, this is what therapy's like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so going on, you talked about the diagnosis that you got. Do you feel like getting a dual diagnosis is important to your recovery? I think anybody who has an addiction issue should get diagnosed because I feel like while I look at addiction as a disease, I think it's symptomatic of deeper problems. Um, because really, in its essence, what addiction is 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 uh. It's, a, it's poor coping strategies and those coping strategies, those poor coping strategies stem from somewhere. There's a reason, uh, there's a reason that we don't know how to manage things. And a lot of it, I mean, basically everything in your life, that's a problem comes down to childhood trauma at some point. So it's like, you have a lot of issues that need to be reconciled. I think 
therapy is good. And I think having a diagnosis is good. You might have, you know, a, a mental health issue going on. And uh, I mean, I know for people who are bipolar, they have twice the rate of addiction as people who don't have mental health issues. So, you know, there's, there's a good chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one thing that I noticed, and I don't know if you noticed this, but f- this is for me and I've, other people have said it too, is that when we get the diagnosis, I got my diagnosis of like PTSD and like depression, anxiety, and a few other things. When I got that, I noticed that my symptoms started significantly getting worse. Was that the same for you? Oh man, do I have a story. So I was initially diagnosed in 2014. I quit drinking in 2015. I was diagnosed as clinical depression, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, ADHD. They said I had some tendencies toward mania, but not enough to consider me bipolar. So I was being treated for depression from 2014 to 2019. Mm-hmm. And it was the beginning of 2019. I got re-diagnosed as bipolar. At that point, I'm on three antidepressants and one mood stabilizer, one low-dose mood stabilizer. Uh, Antidepressants with people with bipolar have the effect of causing mania because they raise your mood. They don't stabilize your mood. They raise it. So when I got out of, when I got sober, I was doing great for for like three years. I was great. What I didn't realize was that I was in a mild state of hypomania for several years. One brought on by, by getting sober and listening to, you know, positive podcasts and personal development stuff, but also because I was on a bunch of antidepressants. So I was in this mild state of hypomania and then I got re-diagnosed bipolar. And the same year I got re-diagnosed bipolar, like a couple months later, my mother-in-law passed away. And it was really difficult on our family. It's still very difficult for both of us. We were very close with her. She was a great woman. Um, and then that same year, my wife had a baby. And she almost died in the hospital. And then the following year, COVID came. Yeah. Basically, I got diagnosed bipolar. And I didn't realize how much I was struggling with the diagnosis. And then all these events happened that were triggering me. And I slid down into this what's called a dysphoric episode and a dysphoric mania where you have these increased uh, moods of mania where you know you you are irritable and you have racing thoughts and you're very productive and you sleep less and all these things but i was also wildly depressed at the same time now i didn't realize this was happening because it was like a slow descent into it and it started in 2019. I didn't come out of it till the end of 2021. Come out of it enough to realize I was in an episode. And then it took me probably another six months to a year to fully come out of that. Um, so, yeah, after my diagnosis, my symptoms got worse for sure. I, I It was uh, it's still it's still really tough now because that episode was so bad. And I did a lot of terrible shit during yeah. that episode. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a constant struggle. But well, uh, one of the, one of the things, um, I'm, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Uh, no, 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 you're, you're good. Go ahead. That thought. I'm reading. Go ahead. Um, so 
with with that episode, what, what I've realized over time since then, you know, it's been a year and a half or so since I came, a little over a year and a half since I came out. Um, what I've realized is that I had to go through that. You know, I, I had had, in hindsight, I can look back in my drinking career and see where I was having episodes, yeah. but I was drinking, so it was like it's so masked and muddled and confused, you don't know what's happening. Um, but this is the first time something major like that happened sober. And I've just realized that I had to have that episode as terrible as it was, as much damage as it caused to me and damage to my friends and my family, um, my, my employees, as much damage as it caused, it had to happen because I had to understand the weight of what I was dealing with. So I had to really be able to grasp like what my illness was and what that meant. Somehow I managed to stay sober through it. I'm really thankful for that one because I don't know what would have happened if I, if I had relapsed. But yeah, it's... yeah, I I understand. I understand. I had a situation happen uh, on the tail end of this past year, and and it I, I definitely look back and I'm like I don't even know how the fuck I made it through, <laughs> right? But I knew the one thing is I had to stay sober, and and I did, and I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. The the shitty things because I can now look back and say if I made it through that, I can make it through anything. It was seriously either the day it clicked that I was in an episode or the day before it clicked, I almost relapsed. I got real close. And uh, it was like either that same day or the next day, I was like, I'm having an episode right now. I need to, be, I need to get my shit together. Yeah. So it, 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 I cut it close. I really did. You, uh, you, you talked about the pandemic, uh, or you mentioned it, and uh, this is, is something that uh, I like to ask people that were in recovery prior to the pandemic and looking back. How did the pandemic affect your recovery? Because uh, I, know, I know that everything shut down, no, no longer doing in-person meetings. It was a little bit harder, you know, social distancing, masks, all that stuff. How did that affect your recovery? Um. Well, I think at the time my recovery was real strong. Um, it, it affected my my mental health a lot more than the recovery itself because I, I, I stopped seeing my therapist for about six months because I didn't like the video version. I went back to video, but I, I didn't like it. It didn't feel right. So I stopped seeing my therapist for about six months. So I really wasn't taking care of myself at the beginning there. Um, but I felt okay with my sobriety. Uh if anything, it was like I wasn't out, so I wasn't being tempted the way I normally would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my, my old bar is within eyesight of my of my shop, so it's like I look out the front door and there's my bar right there. You know, so yeah. it's like I deal with that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I entered it. I entered into recovery like literally two months before the pandemic kicked off. And then it kicked off and I was like, you know, I was still in that sheltered mind frame where I was like, I don't want to be around anybody. So when it hit, I was like, I get to stay home and go to meetings. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah. I'm fine. Leave me at home. I'm, I'm usually pretty good at that. <laughs> right. I got my video games and I got a ton of movies I can watch. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't really hang out with people anyway. So. Right. Right. Uh, so. Obviously, you know, moving past that and you're, you're still sober and you're working through everything. What does what does your life look like now versus then? Uh, 
Well, I firmly believe that, I mean, I wouldn't have any of what I have now without my sobriety. Um, I don't think I'd have my life right now. Uh, you know, cause just real quick on that. If, if, if I play that out, if I hadn't quit drinking when I did, I would have gotten thrown out when I went home. So that would have been step one. And I would have been blowing through money on hotels. I had already started borrowing money to pay bills. So I would have been blown through money on hotels, blown through that money. I would have been living in my tattoo shop. Uh, I wouldn't be able to see my daughters because I didn't have a place to live. Um, everybody was quitting at work. So the rest of the staff would have quit. I eventually wouldn't be making enough money to pay the bills there. I'd end up homeless. And from there, it's a short, short trip to death. So I believe in a year I would have been dead if I hadn't quit when I quit. Uh, that said, if I, that said, after I quit, I got married uh, nine months later because we were engaged before I, I got sober and I got married and then we had a son and we've had another son since then. I was able to buy a house, like I was able to save money, like, <laughs> you know, all these things. And it's like, I wouldn't have, and it's like, yes, those are physical things. You know, just things, they don't actually mean anything in the long run, but I think if, if nothing else, I wouldn't have the self-awareness about who I am, yeah. you know, because I mean, and, and that's an ongoing thing. And you, you always question who we are and I'm still going to question those things and still be on that constant search to know myself, you know, yeah. but I, I wouldn't have been able to even make progress with that because I had no clue who I was when I was drinking, yeah. you know, I, I thought I knew, but it was so far from, from the truth. So if anything, that's the most important thing I've gained from sobriety is just knowledge of self. That's awesome. That's awesome. How do you, how do you reach out to people when, when they're suffering, you know, and, and they're in the middle of their, 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 um, active addiction, what, what kind of advice do you give them? Um, so ever since I got sober, I started being real open publicly mm -hmm. about my addiction because to me, uh, I felt like if I wasn't honest with the public, because I've, you know, I, I tattoo, I got a bunch of followers on Instagram and stuff. Yeah. So I was like, if I'm not honest with the public and honest with my clientele and everybody, then I have a, a secret. And if I have a secret, it's a hiding place. And yeah. when you have a place to hide, you have a place you can get in trouble. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. So I saw it as uh, be open. So I was open about my addiction, open about my mental health. And that's when I would start having people like, comment on things or message me saying that those messages and the things I've said help. And, um, I've kind of left myself open for people, you know, so I've talked to a lot of people over the years, but I left myself open and I've had people reach out to me, uh, you know, when they're having struggles and, and I try to talk to them as much as I can try to encourage them and talk them through it. Anybody that's struggling with any kind of like alcohol or benzos, I really encourage them. I mean, I encourage anybody to get into a program if they can, like, but anybody struggling with alcohol or benzos, I tell them like get to a hospital, you know, uh, cause that's deadly. So, yeah, you know, and I tell people like get therapy, like get therapy, get a diagnosis, start going to meetings. Like, even if you don't agree a hundred percent with, you know, 12 step programs, cause I don't, I don't go to a 12 step. I went for a year and then I stopped. Yeah. Um, but it helped me tremendously at the time because it gave me a safe place. Um, 
you know, so I tell people to, to get involved in things, you know, and, and I just keep, I just keep open. That's the biggest thing I think I've done to be able to keep open. And the fact that I've had people reach out and tell me that I either encouraged or helped them to get sober is more than enough payment to me. Like, yeah, that, that means the world to me that anybody, that I was able to help anybody, you know? Yeah. So if nothing else, I feel like my words have been helpful. It's, it's crazy how, how we defeat the stigma, right? Every single day when, when we open up and we talk and we're honest and vulnerable, right? Because for the longest time, and I don't know if you've encountered this, but like as a man, it's hard to talk about those things, right? Cause we feel like we're going to be looked down upon or are told that we're weak, but just given that, you know, open and honesty and vulnerability really gives people the platform or the ability to say, Hey, I felt that way before and, or I'm feeling that way now. Um, is that, is that kind of where, where you see it at? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's there, you're right. There's a, a ton of stigma about addiction and about mental health and, uh, people don't like to talk about those things. Um, they're like off, you know, the taboo topic, but, uh, so many people deal with both that there are conversations that need to be had. And you're right. As a, as a man, like we are, especially, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm 44. Um, you know, being raised, especially like back in the eighties, um, you know, you're taught to suck it up, just suck it up, man up, stop being a baby, you know? And, and that's, you know, that's how you're expected to be. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's really damaging as you get older. I mean, cause there's people think people have this thing where they think that masculinity doesn't have room for sensitivity and doesn't have room for vulnerability. When, if you ask me, like they're two of the. Oh, we back. Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. All right. <laughs> That's all right. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, vulnerability and sensitivity, like people think they don't have a place in masculinity, but I think that there are two of the hallmarks of being a, a, a man. Like you have to, because you're trying to raise people, you're trying to take care of people. Like, you know, if you're a man, like, you know, stereotypically you're, you're trying to take care of your family. Um, so really what means taking care of somebody? What does that mean? It means that you're helping them to be a healthy and better person. Like, and function properly. Like I got little kids, like I, you know, I have to try to raise them to, to function. And I mean, I have a lot of mental health issues. And so it's like, I worry about my kids. Like, are they going to have issues? And I want to help give them the tools to manage them early on. And it's like, that requires sensitivity that requires empathy, you know? And, and um, I, I think the more people, you know, break that stigma by talking openly, the, the better, the better off society will be as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we shut down shop, um, I want to ask, what advice would you give to somebody that's, that's struggling and, you know, an active addiction or, um, early recovery and they're like, man, I don't know if this shit's for me. What would you give to them? I mean, first off, when people are struggling, a lot of times when people are struggling, it's not because they can't quit. 
And it's not because they don't want to quit. It's because they think there's no way out. And I think just looking at people that have done it means that there is a way out. You might not know how to do it, but there's a way out. And all you got to do is open yourself up. You got to open yourself up and be able to, you have to admit those, again, goes back to, you know, sensitivity and, um, you know, vulnerability, because that's what's going to help you through early recovery, especially is letting yourself be vulnerable because you have to face these things that are, you know, I guess, character flaws, I guess, um, you know, so, so you have to face them. And I think that's uh, what I usually tell people is like, you got to accept things as they are. Like, however, you know, you, you don't have to like things to accept them, but you have to accept it and then you can work on it from there. Um, you know, and that's usually what I tell people and, and just lean, lean on the people that are there for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tim, where can we find you at? Um, well, I have, I have many places to reach me. Um, depends what you want to reach me for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when people are looking to get tattooed by me, it's my website, timpangburn.com. Uh, anything else related to mental health or related to addiction, uh, through my Instagram is Tim Pangburn speaks. Uh, which I also just started a Threads account because that's a new thing now, which is also Tim Pangburn Speaks. Um, and on on those two, uh, that Instagram and that Threads account, I I talk a lot about, um, you know, I, I, I talk about addiction. I talk about mental health, but I talk a lot about, you know, just general uh, all-purpose, like personal development and how we can become better people and take more control of our lives. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Tim, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your story. You're an awesome human being. You're a, a, an amazing man, amazing individual. And uh, I'm glad to have you as a member of my family. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate the opportunity. And everybody, thank you guys for hanging out with us for these 45 minutes. It's been awesome. It's been great. I appreciate every single one of you. Uh, much like I, I appreciate Tim. So until next time, I hope you guys have a good day. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Much love, y'all.